This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. The 18th century, France and Great Britain waged an epic war against each other. We call that series of wars the French Revolution. Some people call it the Napoleonic Wars because it really was instigated by a very tiny French general named Napoleon Bonaparte who was a brilliant tacticianer on the war field. Napoleon was known for getting the upper hand early in a battle. And as the land that they had gained began to grow, Napoleon's army stretched east into the Swiss Alps and the southern mountains of southern Germany. Today there's a tiny country that we call Liechtenstein. And right outside of that in what is now present day Austria, there's a small town called Fieldkirk. And over a week, Napoleon's army flooded in to the surrounding countryside. I think we have a picture of Fieldkirk for you to look at. Nestled in between hills, Napoleon's army began to occupy the hills and the mountains that surrounded this small town, realizing that it was a gateway into the country of Austria. As the forces began to grow and to gather and to gain the upper hand by having the higher ground, the people of the small town became very concerned. And on Saturday evening, the pastor of the one church in town made his way through and said, Folks, I think that maybe perhaps we've been living very aware of the danger that we're in. But maybe we haven't been living in light of the great strength that our God has. Maybe we've been living with the present reality of the danger that this army represents, but perhaps we haven't been living with the kind of recognition that says, God, you're bigger than any army that would ever lay siege to us. So tomorrow morning, on Sunday morning, let's go to church like normal. Let's gather together as a town and let's worship God Let's call out to God and let's trust that whatever happens is God's will. And so that's exactly what the town did Sunday morning. They all gathered in the church in the middle of town and they worshiped together. And as their worship concluded, as was customary for them, 
they rang the town bell. Five times. Not knowing that the town had been spied upon all morning by French spies who came back and reported to Napoleon that the, t- the streets are empty. There's, there's no one in the streets. Something has changed. And when the bell rang, Napoleon took it as a symbol that the Austrian army had occupied Field Kirk on Saturday night in the darkness. And he withdrew all of his troops. Never to again enter Austria. The topic of worship is something that when we begin to talk about it, most of us like to think of it a bit like playing music on the radio. We talk about styles. We talk about emotions. But worship is more important than that because worship is an issue of life or death. The people of Fieldcourt chose to worship God and it saved their lives. And really, the invitation of the gospel is that we would worship the God of the universe and it would do the same thing. But if we make the wrong choice when it comes to worship, we're laying the groundwork for some devastating results in our lives. Let's get to work in your notes. Worship is important because worship is central to our experience. Worship is central. It is not something that is peripheral. Worship is the center of all of our lives. And as we take some time this morning, I'm hoping that that will become a little bit more obvious to you. Worship is important because it is an issue of life and death, and that issue is central to our lives. And number two, what we ultimately worship will define every other relationship. Because there are many of us that have spent many moments, even though you may love Jesus, worshiping something else. And what we ultimately worship, the God that takes the highest place in our lives, the God that receives all, it will affect every relationship in our lives. Worship is a vital topic for us to understand. And I... I, really believe that in many of our lives, our perspective has narrowed and actually defined what worship is so inadequately that we do not have a great concept of what the Bible talks about when it talks about worship in the first place. And when we're dealing with something like that, often the first step that we need to take 
is not to create a new definition, but actually to go in and to debug the wrong definition. So what is worship not? What have we said that is worship? This thing is worship, but that's not really what it is. The first thing that I would tell you today that worship is not is worship is not holy music and singing. It is a part of that, and the Bible celebrates that. As a matter of fact, multiple times in the Psalms, we're invited to sing. You want to know what kind of song the Psalms invite us to sing? At least 20 times in the Scriptures, about seven times in the book of Psalms alone. The Bible says to sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. And isn't it interesting that too often the songs we want to sing are old? Well, the Bible wants us to sing. But there's something hidden in that. And as we go forward into this series, we're going to take some time and unearth that because that's important for us to know. But the Bible invites us to sing. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that when people ask you, what kind of worship do you guys do at Vortex Church? Just tell them, we do the most biblical, old school kind of worship that you can imagine. Because for most of us, when we think of that, we think about an old lady sitting over in a corner, right, with a, a organ going to town and and some hymnals but read psalm 150 read as the book of psalms comes to a close read what the bible says that worship should look like that music in worship should it, it talks about stringed instruments like a piano like a bass guitar like a lead guitar it talks a lot about percussion Symbols and drums. See, the worship music that's described in Psalm 150 is not subdued and rendered to a corner. It's quite loud. That's why we have earplugs up here now. In case your ears ring a little bit. But no, we, we want to be the kind of church that honors what the Bible says about music, but when we look at music and say music is worship, we've missed it. We've, we've missed it because that is not what worship holy is. See, worship is much more central than that. When we relegate worship only to music, it has a limited scope in our lives. And worship is something that touches every area of our life. Not just because there's a Hillsong United CD playing in the background, right? Well, it really is involved in every decision we make, every attitude we harbor, 
Worship is central. What, so what else is worship not that we might have thought it was? The second thing that I would tell you is that worship is not reserved for church meetings. Worship is not reserved for church meetings. And I'm not just talking about you playing a CD and going to town singing at home. Right? Here's, here's a major problem in the way that we think about our relationships with God. Is that we as Americans all too often compartmentalize our relationship with God. Where we will be people who go to small group and use the language of a loving God and a relationship that we have with Him. We will be faithful to come on Sunday mornings, but when we get out of this place, we live like we want to. And for decades, the world has sat back and looked at that labeled it as hypocrisy and it has discredited the gospel because we claim to be those people that have experienced the power of resurrection but live with no demonstration thereof because we have relegated our relationship to God to one moment on a Sunday morning. And that is not worship. Worship is infectious. It literally should be a part of every simple act that we do, every component of our lives. It cannot be contained to just one moment, one day, one part of the week. Worship really is something that happens all throughout every day in every one of our lives. Now we're going to look at the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has in Scripture today. It's found in John 4. I want to kind of set the backdrop up for this. Jesus has found himself in a little bit of a competition that he didn't ask to be a part of. His cousin, John, and Jesus are now both on the scene, both in ministry. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, really to mock both of them, have started keeping track of the people that they baptize. Little check marks. Who's in the lead today? John took the lead last night. He got seven last night. Right? And Jesus decides to leave. Not to rebuke him. Not to yell at him. Not to, you know, do his Jesus thing and turn him into trees or anything like that. He, he just leaves. Right? He just leaves, which is good advice for some of us that are in bad situations with people who are making fun or using us. He doesn't get involved with the drama. He just leaves. And on the journey, 
Jesus would pass through Samaria. And in Samaria, Jesus would come across a woman. Let's go ahead and pick up reading in verse 13. I'm going to read from my phone because I brought the wrong Bible today, and I want to read from the right version. So beginning in verse 13, Jesus speaking. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, now he's met her at a well. The well of Jacob, right, which we all know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the forefathers of the the Hebrew nation of Israel. And, and he, this is a place that he had lived before. But just to kind of bring some understanding into the conversation, this is a woman and she's Samaritan. All right. For Jews, uh, their lives revolved around a question, is it clean or is it not clean? And Samaritans were not clean. All right. They were uh, racially outside of the permitted uh, relationship zone, right? And so Jesus has engaged this woman in a conversation, and they are talking about the water that she has come in the middle of the day to draw from this well. And Jesus said, anyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artisan spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. Won't ever have to come back to this well again. And he said, go call your husband and then come back. Now he's playing with her a little bit. Verse 17, I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. I love that. That's one of my favorite verses in all. Oh, yeah, you're a prophet, right? Because you just totally read my mail. Um, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Let's see where the conversation goes. Our ancestors Worship God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, the woman said. Believe me, woman. The time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming. It has, in fact, come when you will be called, when what you're called will not matter, and where you're going to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way that you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people our Father, the Father, is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. Think about that with me. Jesus in that moment crosses every 
social boundary that would have ever come into context for him. It's the middle of the day. Women went to draw water in the morning and in the evening. She's coming because she is a reject from society. She's a whore. And Jesus knows who she is. Jesus goes to talk to this woman who is a woman in a culture where speaking to women, just the nature of actually even having a conversation could be, could be viewed as coming on to someone. She's a Samaritan. She is the race or a race that you don't talk to. Jesus crosses every cultural boundary to address this woman. And what is the central issue of their conversation? Worship. Worship. It's where... We get phrases like, you will worship in spirit and in truth, right? There's a few things that I see from this conversation that I want to go ahead and point out. The first thing that Jesus tells us is that we all worship. We, all of us, everybody worships. We all worship. But then he begins to, if you read in other texts, and really kind of get into what he's going with this, we see two principles that come out as he talks about the way that we worship. The first thing is that some worship God partly. And the second is that some worship God completely. And he makes the differentiation in this moment between the Samaritans and him being a Jew because that's really the way that the woman phrases the question. She says, hey, I, all, of, all of my people say this as Samaritans. You're a Jew. Can you tell me what the real deal is? And Jesus says, hey, you want to know what? You worship partly. We worship fully. And we can see that there are some that worship partly and some that worship completely. But we know this. Because of Jesus, there is no excuse to only worship partly. Jesus says there's a time coming that, uh, no wait, it's not coming. Indeed, it's already come. When where you are, who you are will no longer matter, you can worship God fully. And that's the invitation of the gospel. is to completely worship Jesus. But here's the truth. We all worship completely. But not all of us worship Jesus. 
All of us have a supreme God that we're worshiping. All of us do. But for many of us, even though you may love Jesus and you may have committed your life to following Him, right now, Jesus is not the God that your life is responding to. As a matter of fact, we, many of us, me often, can be found with the wrong worship, not the worship that Jesus is inviting us into in that conversation, but literally living out the wrong worship. Let's take two perspectives of what the wrong worship can be. The first thing that I would tell you that is the wrong kind of worship is that we worship gifts instead of the giver. We worship gifts instead of the giver. This is entirely prevalent in American Christian culture. Where we worship good things that God has given us, and we elevate those things in Christian language and Christian idolatry above Jesus himself. Where we worship the gift above the giver. I don't think that's any more evident than on college campuses where young men and young women who really love Jesus really do and they are passionate about serving him and giving their lives to him if you sat down and asked many of them what is the one thing that you want the most out of life they would say I'd really like to find somebody that would be a lifelong companion and their prayer lives revolve around asking God to send that person to them. They write down little lists about what they're looking for in a spouse, right? None of us ever did that, I'm sure, right? And they pray, and then they find somebody who doesn't love Jesus. He's nice to her. So you know what? It's a gift above the giver. And all too often I've seen people sacrifice real life that follows Jesus for the gift that they're trying to get from the giver. Here's a few gifts I think that we mistake sometimes. The first one is security. It is far too easy in this world that we live in to look at the security that God does give so many of us and get confused about what is the ultimate God there. Are we secure because of what God has given us or are we secure because of who God is? 
Is your security wrapped up in what the number says on your bank account? Is your security wrapped up in the fact that your kids are safe and all in the house like a mama hen? Or is your security wrapped up in the fact that God has always taken care of you? He has always provided and will always do that for you. Is your security based in a gift or is it based in the giver? Influence is another one. Influence is a gift. The ability to have a relationship with someone where God leverages us to make a difference in their lives is an entire gift from God. But there are way too many of us in this world who are willing to do things that are completely wrong to get influence in people's lives. To elevate that gift above the giver and to get confused about which we are to pursue first. And I can honestly tell you as a pastor, that is a constant struggle. But I want to be the kind of person who can honestly look at you today and say that my pursuit is not after being somebody that has a bigger platform or anything like that. I just want to love Jesus and follow Him. The second place that we get it wrong when it comes to worship is that we worship created things instead of the Creator. We worship created things instead of the Creator. And that happens sometimes in simple ways where perhaps we fall in love with a car and we spend Evenings and weekends and all of our spare time devoted to a thing. There's nothing wrong with cars. There's nothing wrong with hobbies. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But when we start to worship them, when they start to get most of our affection, most of our attention, when they start to get most of us, there's a problem. Look at what Romans says. Romans 1.25. Listen to this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. When our lives are being spent worshiping, responding to, and serving something that was created. It's a lie. And it can feel meaningful. It can feel rewarding. It can give you a purpose. But all of that is a lie. Because in that, we've traded what God really created us to do. And that's to worship 
and respond to him. Now it's Father's Day. I want to talk to dads for a moment. Your family is worshiping right now. And tonight, your family is going to be worshiping. Your family is always worshiping. And you want to know who they're learning how to worship from? You. They're learning how to worship from you. They're learning what a life should look like from you. Your wife, your kids are looking at you. And the question that we need to constantly process as men who love Jesus and want to follow him is, God, how can I worship you more fully? Because I won't want to be that person. I don't want to be that guy that's caught only worshiping you partly. I don't want to be the person that has compartmentalized my life, who has relegated you into a tiny portion. I want my life to be completely devoted in worshiping you. Why? Because one, it's, it's what I should be, but ultimately in my family, my kids will learn how to worship from me. So when those moments come, and bad news comes through the telephone and it hits my ears. My kids will watch me and learn how I deal with it. And they will mimic me and follow me in how I worship. When those times come, when unexpected blessings come. There's a check in the mail that I don't even know where it was coming from. There's a raise at work. There's a blessing that comes into our lives. My kids will sit back and watch what we do with that. See, our families are always learning from us. And what you worship is critical to the climate of your family. Worship is an issue of life or death, without a doubt. And the only way that we can completely and totally worship God is to completely surrender to God. Complete worship is complete surrender. Look at this verse with me out of Romans 12. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to what? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. What? This is true and proper worship. Every moment. Every day. No breaks. Not just confined to a one-hour experience on a Sunday morning. It is us looking into the heart of God and going, whatever you ask me, God, I will respond to you. Whatever you want from me, let me be a living sacrifice. Let me be the kind of person that you can come and light on fire, God. Because that is true and pleasing worship. Let's pray. God, we just ask you today for those of us that are learning about worship, maybe for the first time, maybe some of us have have thought, oh, maybe it's just songs, but today you've reminded us that worship is every area of our lives. And for those of us that are fathers and parents, today you've challenged us that our worship is setting a tone for our families. That what we worship and how we worship will lead to how our kids learn to worship. Now, with nobody looking around, just very quickly, let me ask you a question because there are many of us today that have struggled with worshiping the wrong thing. You're sacrificing right now, but you're not sacrificing to follow God. You're sacrificing to get a leg up in the company that you're working for. You're not sacrificing right now to follow Jesus. You're sacrificing to support a sinful habit. You're not sacrificing to follow Jesus. You're sacrificing to do what you want to do. Maybe today... The grand invitation from God is that you can live as a living sacrifice. And that through that, you can experience real life the way that it was meant to be. If that's you, and you're here today and you say, hey, I need to get this worship thing right, would you raise your hand right now? That's awesome. That's awesome. Is there anybody else that would say, hey, I've been worshiping the wrong thing. I've been giving my heart to the wrong thing. I just need to get this right today. So God, for those who just responded to that, God, we ask that by your grace and mercy, God, you would come and free us to worship you. Free us to respond to you. For your name, we pray. Amen.